Okay, hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration, refugee, and border-related issues. I'm Steve Murins. I'm joined today remotely, as always during COVID, by Deanna Okanachoff. And today we are also joined by Ari Warmley, a Vancouver family lawyer with Y-Law Group in Vancouver. And Ari is joining us today to answer some questions about how family law in British Columbia works um, and questions that immigrants or prospective immigrants often have. Ari, thanks for joining us today, also remotely over Skype. Happy to be here. Great. So uh, why don't we just jump into it uh, with the first question and probably the question that I get most often is, does British Columbia recognize foreign marriages? Uh, yes. Assuming that the marriage is valid in the jurisdiction where it was performed, uh, almost all jurisdiction—sorry, uh, almost all marriages are recognized. There are some exceptions. Um, for example, if uh, if the person lives in Canada. Um, the marriage also has to be one that could be legal here. Uh, so it depends where the person is domiciled and also where it's married, uh, so also where they're married. For example, if someone entered into a polygamous marriage in Saudi Arabia and they lived in Saudi Arabia and then they came to Canada, that would likely be okay. But if somebody lived in Canada, got married in a polygamous relationship in Saudi Arabia and then tried to come back to Canada with that relationship, they might hit some bumps in the road. Um, uh, same thing with uh, consanguinity, which basically means marrying somebody who's too close to you, a brother, sister. Uh, I can't remember how first cousins get treated, actually. Uh, but those things, if you're domic- if you live in Canada, it has to be a marriage that could be legal if it were performed in Canada. If you don't live in Canada, then you don't have to worry about it, and it will uh, very likely pass muster. Um, technically, I think there is... Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I was just going to say, technically, there are some narrow grounds, I think, for... Um, refusing to recognize a marriage for reasons of public policy, but from a family law perspective, I've never really seen the courts get into that, you know. So maybe this is related, but I'm wondering whether or not um, Canada has like an age limit, whether or not a marriage by somebody under a certain age would have issues in terms of legality. Uh, Yes, Um, and and when I, you know, you say Canada, I, I should be clear, because of the way the Constitution works in Canada, um, for the most part, uh, marriage is uh, governed by rules set down by the individual provinces. Now, they're mostly, I think, the same as far as I know. Quebec may be very different, but uh, they're mostly not too different from each other. But uh, there are age requirements, and people below a certain age Uh, will require parental consent. What I can't remember off the top of my head is whether there are marriages that could be done even with parental consent that would be invalid because there's a certain threshold. uh, Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, like, could you 
marry people below the age of 12, even with parental consent, outside of something called a Dukabor marriage, which I've read about, but I have no idea what that actually means. Mm -hmm. But apparently that's okay with parental consent. And switching to common law, so maybe just if you could do a two to five sentence overview of what a common law relationship is in British Columbia. Right. So if you've been cohabiting in a marriage-like relationship, um, which depends on a variety of factors, uh, but if you've been cohabiting in a marriage-like relationship for a period of two years or more, you're in a common law relationship. And as far as family law works in BC, um, it mostly doesn't matter whether you're actually married or not. Um, there are a couple of areas of law, relocation, where things might be a little bit different. And the main difference is that if you're married, um, limitation periods, meaning the time in which you can ask a court to award spousal support and property division, those don't start running until after you're divorced. And if you're married, actually, there technically is no limitation period for spousal support. Whereas if you're common law, you've got two years from the date of separation to make your claims. Child support, you can actually, in accordance with the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision, bring it on pretty much whenever. Um, in terms of what a marriage-like relationship is, there are a number of factors, you know, whether you're having sex, going on vacations together, how you're presenting yourself to others, um, joint bank accounts, uh, whether you're living together, um, the intention to, um, you know, look after the other in the event of some kind of infirmity, disability, or medical mishap. Those are all factors that get looked at together. Um, so, for example, you can be uh, living in a common law relationship, but not living in the same house, because that's just one factor. Likewise, you know, you can be living in the same house, but separated. Um, you know, just because somebody goes to France for a couple of years to study doesn't mean you guys aren't still in a marriage-like relationship. Likewise, yeah. if you guys have broken up and uh, you're not sleeping together anymore and you've got completely separate finances, etc., 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 even if you're still living in the same house in different rooms, you're probably not in a relationship. And this raises some interesting points from the immigration perspective, too. I'm particularly intrigued by your statement that um, you can live in separate houses but still be considered common law, because that is something oh, that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that there, new there are, has made its way to immigration just yet. I've tried arguing it in a number of cases, and sometimes successfully, but there's... It seems in the immigration context that cohabitation is a basic starting point for a common law relationship. Yeah. I, I think uh, I, I think there's actually a family law case about a couple who lived on opposite sides of the border and mostly um, didn't live. Uh, you know, they, they had separate houses, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, they, they would go up and visit and so on and so forth. Um, you know, but they, they weren't really living together. And the court found, yeah, nevertheless, this was, in fact, a, uh, 
uh, a common law relationship. You can even have a common law relationship. Uh, there, there was one guy, I mean, th this couple was in BC, but he was married. Um, and I think for most of the time, he was re residing with his the person he was married to and his children. But the court, when looking at it, this was a wills issue, nevertheless found that the other uh, person constituted a spouse, um, you know, it was a common law spouse. That's super interesting because in, in immigration, there are two distinct concepts, uh, one of a common law partnership and one that they call a conjugal partnership. And the distinction between the two is that um, for the most part, the, um, the common law is expected to include cohabitation. Now, I don't think, I don't know what you think yeah. about this, Steve, because, um, you know, I have, I think that it's, it's a bit out of keeping with the way modern relationships work. And I do know a lot of people personally and professionally that don't live together by choice, but are very much in a committed marriage-like relationship. Um, and so often for them, the question is whether or not they would be considered a common law couple for immigration purposes. Yeah, like a classic one would be university students who live in residence across the hall from each other for four years would not be common law in immigration. Uh, unless you yeah, can I mean, a test spend seven nights a week together for uh, yeah. the of their relationship. Mm. Um, one sort of related question that if I, if I, if you don't mind, I'd like to sneak in there, which is sure. um, the opposite too. Like if two people are living together as roommates and in a casual relationship, um, it seems to be that um, from a family law standpoint, they can make the argument that they are not common law. I, I'm just kind of curious what degree... They, they could be both. Yeah, they could be both. The, the, that situation where I could readily see both sides, uh, you know, making arguments about what the nature of that relationship is. Because yeah. they are, you know, living together, so that's one of the factors. Uh, they are having sex, that's another. Yeah. Um, you know, questions arise. What are they telling their families? Are they going on vacation? Are there any joint assets? Did somebody get sick? You know, did somebody have to go to the hospital? What happened then? Um, and it may just be that you end up with a case that at the end of the day is, is a coin flip in terms of what you think the odds yeah. of success are. Um, that that can be that kind of thing can be a tough one to uh, to unravel. A lot of times, what I ask. Uh, my clients, when I'm having trouble figuring out when this relationship began, um, is I, I ask them as sort of a proxy, you know, at what point were you guys spending more time with each other than apart, right? And I sometimes use that as a, 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 as a bit of a proxy for a time period in which I should be focusing my questions. Yeah, you know. the role of sex plays is uh, especially interesting. I don't know if you saw Deanna. There's a federal court decision that got picked up by the Toronto Star, where the Immigration and Refugee Board found that a bisexual—I can't remember if he was bisexual or gay person—could not be in a conjugal relationship with a straight woman because according to the decision, due to his orientation, 
So it must have been due to his orientation. He sometimes was unable to perform in bed. Oh my God. And so they found that the lack of sexual intercourse meant that it couldn't be a conjugal relationship. It got set aside by the federal court, but it was an example of how the assessment of these factors can sometimes get really murky. Yeah, it sure can. And the other the other sort of context that I see this in, Steve, is, um, you know, you do have hearings before the board where they will make an allegation that somebody misrepresented their family status by not telling immigration authorities that they were living with uh, who they believe to be a common law partner in their own application for permanent residence. And when they later marry and they try and sponsor them there's a suggestion that they should have disclosed that relationship earlier. But it does bring up in those cases some of these factors where, you know, two people were dating and living together, but just hadn't reached that point of making that commitment to one another and whether or not they were obligated to disclose that relationship and leave it to immigration to determine whether or not in their view it was a common law relationship that and that the person would then need examination so there's lots of cases about this where the couple is saying no we're not common law we're both agreed that we're not common law but the department takes a different view and and makes a misrepresentation allegation for the purpose of bc law does the two years have to be in british columbia or um would if someone No. no question I get asked, and I feel like I know the answer, is although immigration immigration law, common law, is one year of cohabitation, in British Columbia it's two years, does the fact that the federal government has already said these people are common law partners for immigration automatically mean that British Columbia will recognize that and shorten their period from two years to one? No, if you've got people that have been cohabiting for one year, and they come to BC and then break up, uh, there's going to be no property entitlement um, and uh, maybe no spousal if they don't have a kid. Um, the, the, uh, you have to be in a relationship for two years to get property division. You have to be in a relationship for two years to get spousal support unless you have a child. If you have a child, you just had to have been in a marriage-like relationship for some amount of time, and there's no firm rule on how long that had to be. So if somebody has, like, a one-night stand with someone, they don't have to pay child support? No, they, they do have to pay child support, they do have to not pay. spousal. I must have missed you. Yeah, okay. I think I missed. Yeah. Um... Another question on at least marriages, and this is one that Ari and I actually worked together on a file, um, which I won't get into the details of for obvious reasons, but the basic question is, uh, if someone is in British Columbia with fake ID and an assumed identity, and they get married under that assumed identity, is the marriage valid? And the answer to that is uh, yes. If, if the, uh, I mean, if, if the marriage, at least in British Columbia, Nova Scotia, the answer to that is, is going to be yes. Um, uh, you know, if, if they got married, I suppose, in a jurisdiction where 
that was fatal to uh, to the status of the marriage, then you know, like like any other marriage that's not valid where it's performed, it would be an issue. But in BC and Nova Scotia, for sure, you're okay with that. I suspect in most of the other provinces in Canada as well, that would be all right. Wow, that's really interesting. That, I think that's it was qualified that as long as the person they were marrying knew who the real person was or what the real identity was. Well, I actually, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, except in like a rare instance where, you know, uh, somebody marries a twin thinking that they're the other twin, uh, you know, as long as the person actually knows who it is that they're getting married to and they're consenting to get married to that person, even if they don't know their actual name, I don't see that as being an issue. Wow. And none of this would form a grounds for an annulment. Uh, I, I am going with the, the annulment question after all. I'm, I'm curious. Wow. Uh, annul annulment uh, requires uh, an, an invincible uh, aversion to uh, having, to, to consummating the relationship with that person. It can be physical, it oh. can be psychological. But it, it does um, re require that for a lot of reasons, many people aren't willing to agree to that, especially men. <laughs> um, uh, you know, are well, I guess swear to affidavit to that effect. So it, it could become contested. But an annulment is, is very difficult and, and rare to get in Canada. Right. Um, you know, if, if uh, the marriage was not valid, uh, because, um, you know, the person was already married to somebody else, say, at the time, um, then the marriage might be void or voidable, uh, but it, you wouldn't technically get an annulment. I um, see. Yeah. You know, we learned about this issue also in the context of this case, Deanna, was we filed an access to, there was nothing in the global case management system about this concern. There had not been a procedural fairness letter. We filed an access to information act request, got a copy of the physical file, and there was a post-it note on the IMM 008 main application form, which said, no, do not disclose, here are our concerns. Anyway, that's just a side. Yeah. <laughs> um, so exactly. let's, let's Someone once told me in the department that they have to show everything that's in the file, not on the file, um, was the way it was put to me. Yeah. But is it legal for them to not disclose what their actual concerns are? I mean, how do you address it? Oh, that's a whole separate. Breaches <laughs> <That's a whole, laughs> of procedural fairness would be, I think, the way to go with that. If, uh, but again, you just need you need to know about it before you can raise that as being. Uh, something that was a yeah. basis for an unsustainable decision is you need to know that, that that was the basis upon which they formed their opinion. And unless somebody fails to remove that sticky note, uh, you might be no word the wiser. Yeah. Um, so going back to annulment, what's the difference between an annulment and a divorce? Um, not a lot, really. I mean, practically, uh, almost none. Uh, which is one reason why in Canada, at any rate, it's not it's it's not done a lot. Some people are interested in it for religious reasons, but frankly, most of them can't get it. 
because it's it's a very narrow set of circumstances, um, you know, and where, where that's going to be doable. Is there a reason why it's harder to get than divorce? Um, well, I think simply because they wanted to distinguish between them. They wanted to say, this is what a divorce is, and this is what annulment is. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't fit in the annulment column, you go into the divorce column. Um, you know, I, I don't really know... I don't really know, frankly, if there was any kind of strong public policy reason uh, for that, because at the end of the day, it doesn't it doesn't really matter a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about something you said about the marriage may be void or avoidable. So what is the process that one undertakes if there is a void or avoidable marriage in Canada? Um, well, uh, you would apply in your notice of family claim. Um, well, I guess you might still tick off the divorce box. Uh, this is in BC, I should specify. Um, mm -hmm. You might still tick off the divorce box, but I think um, under other orders sought uh, right. in your notice of family claim, which is the originating document, you would say to set aside um, you know, the, the marriage, uh, alleged or ostensibly performed on date X, uh, because X, right. And then okay. state your reasons why you think it's void or voidable. Interesting. And could you apply for such a determination in a marriage that was not performed in British Columbia? I'm asking this question because I do have a lot of clients who come from Catholic countries where divorce is not an option, um, but it's just a matter of whether or not they might have a means to um, get that divorce or get that order, that marriage kind of determined to be invalid in Canada. Huh. Um, I mean, the, if they wanted it annulled, specifically if they wanted the word annulled used um then they would need to look about consummation and blah 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 but in terms of making it void or voidable i would say yes with the caveat that um they would need the, the reason why it's void or voidable would probably need to be under the law of the jurisdiction in which it was performed. Mm -hmm. And so while a Canadian court might pronounce it void or voidable, they would probably need expert evidence in the form of a, uh, a legal opinion as to mm -hmm. what the state of the law is in the country where it was performed. And then they would need to apply that law to the facts as they find them and then decide whether or not they could do that. I, I don't really know. Uh, okay. I, I haven't actually looked at that, but that would be that would be my first instinct as to how to approach it. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I mean, uh, I might have some cases <laughs> to try this out on because I do find a lot of times there's some legal defect yeah. in the marriage in the country where it was contracted, but then they wish to remarry in Canada, for example, and getting that process rectified in the foreign jurisdiction might be almost impossible. But I have seen cases where immigration yeah. 
taken the position that the Canadian marriage is not valid because even though on the books the foreign Sorry. previous foreign marriage uh, is um, uh, there's an issue with it, a legal issue that still they weren't free to remarry in Canada. So. I mean, certainly from a family law perspective, if they're cohabiting and they're common law, it doesn't matter a lot whether they were married. Um, But I mean, but of course, the reason that this comes up is because they might be in Canada and seeking to sponsor the new spouse who is abroad and can't come to Canada unless that relationship is deemed to be legal. So so that's where this comes up all the time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's well, I feel uh, like that's uh, a argument developed on this podcast that we'll have to Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that is uh that is an interesting scenario. Mm-hmm. Um I mean if if the marriage yeah, if the marriage was held to be um invalid in, uh, in in the jurisdiction where the ceremony was performed, then they're not married. And so I see absolutely zero reason why they could not get remarried. Yeah. I guess what about where, like, because in certain countries, it seems like getting a divorce or an annulment can be a 10 to 15 year never ending process. Is there a way mm-hmm. for PC courts to say, look, uh, what's going on is inequitable right now. We're granting some sort of extreme remedy or annulment here just because the situation going on in the legal system yeah. of the jurisdiction is untenable. I, I, do, I mean, uh, annulment, again, you know, you're dealing with that small subset of cases. Um, if they can apply for an annulment or divorce in Canada... Uh, like they've been resident here for one year, then there's zero reason why the court can't take jurisdiction if everybody if everybody agrees that it can. Um, if there's a dispute, then there may be a concern about who filed first in, and in which jurisdiction. Um, you know, uh, conceivably... Even if somebody had filed first in the other jurisdiction, if if the only issue in the other jurisdiction was in fact divorce, I think it's conceivable that a Canadian court might look at it, might decide to take jurisdiction based on something called forum conveniens, which is basically this is the most convenient forum to mm. do it in. Um, you know, assuming at least one of the parties is resident in Canada, I think might be of the view that waiting 15 years uh, is is excessive, and if that's really the only thing going on, and the other caveat is that we're not, you know, by granting a faster divorce in Canada, we're not depriving somebody of substantive property rights in another jurisdiction, right. you know, um, or, or something like that, as long as there aren't any ancillary concerns about other things going on in the file, if it's really just a divorce and that's the only issue, I could see a Canadian court might well be inclined to, to take that on. Yeah. Wow, that's How long does it take to get divorced in BC? Um, 
Well, that that depends. So, for starters, uh, in the absence of adultery or some very particular kinds of mental and physical cruelty that I'm not going to get into because there's no point in pursuing it on on those reasons. But absent those reasons, you have to be separated for a year before you can actually get your divorce. You can start the process before that year. You just can't finish it. Um, so, at, but after that year, technically at any time, um, you know, the, the major and usual obstacle is it's all the other issues in the family file. Divorce itself is easy peasy. Uh, you know, in a file where people got married and lived together for one year with no, with, meaning there's probably not a lot of property issues and they don't have any kids and there's no facts on the file where we're worried about spousal support, you know, I, I can get a divorce in like less than 30 minutes, really, you know, probably um, uh, within two weeks of them hitting the one year mark. Um, uh, but Is that only if the both parties um, consent that they're not going to dispute it? Um, so that there's not the time periods allowed for responding and contesting and all of this sort of thing? No, it, it's, there's a one-year wait period regardless, mm -hmm. but if there are a bunch of other issues and those issues are disputed, then you may have a trial. And then it depends on when you can get your trial dates. Like I, I would say that if you have a family case and it goes to trial, you're looking at typically somewhere between minimum one year from a date you go see a lawyer to, or maybe maybe call it a year and a half to two and a half years. Wow. Um, and it, it depends on how long your trial is and when you can get trial dates. Uh, in some circumstances, you may be able to get a divorce beforehand, especially if there are no kids. But if there are kids, you have to have a child support or, or adequate arrangements in place for the child in order to get a divorce. And if you don't have that, um, a court will usually not grant a divorce. Okay. I'm there, there are some... Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, there are some exceptions. Um, actually, well, no. I Actually, I don't think there are any exceptions to the one-year rule, but uh, sometimes there are quicker divorces that get granted in the case of um, urgency, because you have to wait 30 days after the order is pronounced as well, um, usually, but if there's some urgency because, I don't know, somebody's getting married soon, you can skip that, but I think you're, I'd have to double check, but I, I think you're pretty much stuck with the one-year rule, absence, adultery, or cruelty. So I know that when you file, um, I can't even remember what it's called, a statement of claim where you're trying to file for divorce, there's the requirement to serve it on the other party and then you have to give them an opportunity right. to respond. Are you saying that if Correct. somebody has not yet met the one year, they can still dispense with all of those filing, serving, responding, um, and that the only thing that would be left to do at the end of the one year is to ask for the order to be issued? Is that, have I got that correct? Uh, yeah, you can resolve, uh, if I'm understanding your question correctly, mm -hmm. um, you can resolve 
all your other issues on your family file at any time. It's just the divorce that has to wait the one year. I see. So what, what I have done in some cases uh, where that's happened is um, I put in uh, final relief. I usually choose to do all the final relief under the Family Law Act. And then at the end of one year, I'll just do a divorce order. Um, or sometimes, you know, the property stuff is all under the Family Law Act, but I might do um, child support and spousal maybe under the Divorce Act. And then once you get a divorce order, that interim relief then becomes final. Okay. So the number one question that I get asked is if my spouse gets deported, or ex-spouse, do I still have to pay child support or spousal support? Uh, definitely child. Um, I mean, assuming that the children are with the spouse who's been deported, obviously, definitely child. Spousal, it would depend really on whether you would have had to ordinarily pay spousal support. Them being deported, um, you know, isn't really going to eliminate their claim. And potentially, like if they had a job here um, and they somehow got deported anyway, then uh, you just deprive them of their employment and now they're not earning anything and it's your fault. Uh, so I could see that actually creating entitlement to spousal support if it didn't exist in the first place. From a practical standpoint, do you see this issue arise? Like, do we see that when someone is deported, to actually like, like, do you see cases where people who are abroad retain Canadian lawyers to try to fight for spousal support that stopped after deportation? Um, they don't usually stop, <laughs> um, but y yes, they, they. I have seen. Uh, cases like that. And it just depends on whether they would ordinarily have been entitled to it. Um, but most of the time when I see something like that, it's in a short-term relationship. And if there's no kids, they may not have any claim to spousal support. And why wouldn't they have that claim? Just because it was a short relationship or... Yeah, a sh short relationship, if they didn't really suffer any economic deprivation as a result of, of that relationship, um, you know, I, I don't know, like, theoretically, you know, let's say in their, their home country, um, they have this great, amazing job, and uh, they leave that job to come to Canada, and then they get deported, and then they go back, and for whatever reason, there's been a major sea change, like, um, and all the people being rehired no longer get the same benefits or the same pay, you know, that they used to have. And this person would have had, you know, access to the higher pay and benefits had they remained in their original country. I could see some claim to entitlement on that basis. But if somebody's just you know, they weren't employed in their home country, they go here, they weren't employed, they go back, they're not employed. I don't really see the deprivation, right? Where's where's the thing that would make that would cause them to have entitlement? Yeah. And what about you know, the other uh, the second most asked question is what if will the BC court when it comes to spousal support care if immigration determined that it was a 
fake marriage and that the person only entered into the marriage for immigration purposes. Did the BC courts take that into consideration or is it is there some family law equivalent to buyer beware? Not really. Um, actually, the only cases where I can think of where I've seen that raised are cases where somebody's arguing that they should get um, support based purely on the uh, the sponsorship undertaking. Um, you know, and the court says, well, yeah, that that sponsorship undertaking is something to consider. So is the fact that it was entered into, you know, purely for sham purposes. But really what we're focused on are the usual criteria that we would look at in determining whether or not spousal is payable. Your clients ask very different questions than my clients, Steve. I <laughs> think <laughs> for my clients, they don't have enough money to care about support or, uh, but I don't know what the, what the difference well, one case actually that I did see that sort of injects a note of caution where the spousal undertaking was still in effect, right? Somebody basically says, yeah, you know, we're going to provide basic needs for this person. And the, the spouse importing, if I can phrase it that way, the, the, um, the, the other spouse did not have a lot of income under the spousal support advisory guidelines that person wouldn't have had to pay enough to meet that person's basic needs because yeah. their income is so low. And there is a provincial court case where the court ordered that person to pay above the high end, above what the high end would have been on their income because they said, look, you have to support this person's basic needs and it doesn't really matter that your income isn't sufficient to ordinarily you know, provide for that. So that that is... I guess something that lower earning people should be aware of. I think, I mean, that was just one decision. I think the law now has probably changed a bit that, that that's such that that's not quite as big of an issue, but that case is still out there. And I don't think anybody's directly said that that's inappropriate. So that that's a risk factor. Well, that's an interesting one. I, I think if you were willing to, or you you remembered with the citation for that case, I wonder whether or not our listeners would be interested in pulling it up because the question of what obligations the Canadian sponsor is going to be held accountable for if there were to be a family law proceeding is something that we deal with quite often because of that sponsorship undertaking yeah. that they've signed. Let's see about that. I, uh, well, sponsorship undertaking always comes up and then whatever is beyond that, um, is always good to know. Do you ever have Deanna this scenario where, uh, or at least you've been brought into advice where one lawyer in a family law proceeding is using the threat of deportation to... Oh. Extract greater payments, or one party, or the threat is being made. Well, so that's not what seen I lawyers involved, but I have certainly seen um, more situations than I care to think about, where the threat of not filing a sponsorship or the threat of withdrawing a sponsorship is something that is actively used for the purposes of perpetrating some kind of, uh, uh, you know, abuse or control over the other spouse so um but
a lawyer has done done that. I feel like to me that would be pretty sharp practice, but uh, I'm interested in hearing what Ari thinks about that. Yeah, I, I think that that would um, I, I think that that would be grounds for uh, probably a law society complaint. The same way that you can't threaten uh, criminal proceedings, right? Exactly. I think if the lawyer did that, they'd get in tr they, they'd be in some hot water. Yeah, we yeah, for sure. Where it was an ICBC council, basically it seemed was trying to have one of the possible witnesses removed from Canada in a case which. I thought was. Uh, I mean, they can do it. What's that? I mean, it's it's one thing. It, they can go ahead and do that, right? But you can't threaten you to do threaten that. It. You can't use it to extract something. Yeah. You know, if if, if somebody's, it's like if somebody's broken the law, uh, you know, like broke the criminal code of Canada, you can make a police complaint and you can have them prosecuted. What you can't do is say, hey. I won't make a complaint if you do this. Right. But to getting a witness removed, um, I think that that is ambiguous because they can just call and make a, a poison pen kind of complaint to the CBSA. And uh, I mean, there would be an issue in terms of whether it was a credible um, complaint. But, um, you know, I, I think that that would still trigger an investigation. And, and more more to the point, I mean, you know, in terms of bumping out a witness for trial, uh, there's Zoom and there's Skype, and we do uh, we do sometimes take evidence over uh, over video at trials. So mm -hmm. even before the pandemic, yeah. so I, I'm I'm not sure how effective that would be. And on the uh, division of assets in a spousal. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but generally assets that are acquired after a marriage is entered into are generally subject to division. That's correct. Does it matter if the person is immigrated or not? Like if a couple gets married and a person buys property in anticipation of the person arriving and then they arrive, does it matter? Is it from the marriage or from does the immigration play a role or no role in that determination? The immigration doesn't really uh, play a role. I, I would say in that scenario, it dates from the date of marriage um, rather than the date the parties started living together. Because um, it, it goes from pretty much the earlier of the two, right? If they were cohabiting, the relationship started from the date of cohabitation. If they were married, it starts from the date of marriage. Yeah. And we've made a couple references to the sponsorship undertaking, which is that when someone sponsors their spouse or common law partner, as well as other categories, they have an obligation to repay the provincial government for any social assistance that is provided to the immigrant for three years after they arrive in Canada. Is there anything that a person can do to protect themselves from a family law perspective with regards to the undertaking? Stay married until it expires. <laughs> um, but having said that, I mean, the, it's a little facetious, but, um, you know, having said that, the pain of that 
uh, may not be worth it. Because like I said, you know, if your relationship is one year and you're not actually married um, and you don't have kids, uh, then you don't have to worry about spousal and you don't have to worry about property division. Your only concern is that undertaking at that point. And the financial damage from that may well be less than your financial damage from staying in the relationship longer and creating more significant entitlement. And, you know, at that point, uh, heaven help you if you have kids, right? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting calculation that I hadn't uh, thought of, the risk of the spousal undertaking versus the risk of a child. Um, yeah. Do you come across a lot of uh, cases involving immigrants? From what I understand, the divorce rate is higher in sponsored couples than in the general population. That... Actually, I, I don't know that that's true. I mean, maybe it, maybe it makes a difference in terms of who comes to us, yeah. right? Um, you know, but because uh, I, I think most of our... It's, it's rare that I have somebody mention, oh, yeah, the sponsorship undertaking is still in effect at any rate. I, I, I don't really keep track of whether the marriages are, are domestic or foreign, um, but it's rare that the sponsorship thing gets brought up as an issue. Um, so to I make of that what you will. I remember this stat because it was something that came up when it, there used to be uh, something called conditional permanent residency, which was if you got divorced or you ended your common partnerships within two years of immigrating, it was uh, like the presumption was, okay, absent humanitarian and compassionate considerations, you're going to be removed from Canada because your permanent residency was conditional. And it revolved slightly the rationale around this stat of divorce rates. Um, but I can't remember the stats off my head. I'll have to look them up. I, I could see that, um, you know, and, and that, you know, I, I could sort of see that happening. On the other hand, you know, I mean, if, if you've got somebody, I'm, I mean, I, I guess being able to stay in Canada is sort of gold of its own. But if you had somebody who was being really mercenary about it, they would stay in the relationship until they had entitlement to assets and support and maybe kids and that that sort of thing, right? Um, uh, but yeah, I, I have, I, I've had a couple where, yeah, the person comes to Canada and then the day later they split, you know, or a week later they split. But those are easy peasy because there's not, other than a bare bones divorce, there's not much to do. Mm -hmm. For me, at any rate. Hmm. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I think the overall statistic is something like 18% of marriage applications are refused due to genuineness concerns. I don't know what percent are successful on appeal, um, but I guess. So like it doesn't really make a diff it doesn't make a difference anyways from the family law perspective why the marriage was entered into. No, not really. You know, I, I th you know, it's 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 unfortunate, 
But, you know, I mean, if you have a kid, you have a kid. And it doesn't matter why you had a kid. And, um, I mean, I, I suppose I could see some argument about, you know, if, if the person left a cushy position back home, then they came to Canada, broke up, and it was, you know, deliberate, you know, if you could really prove that it was deliberate, and now they're saying, oh, I no longer have the cushy job, and that's my basis for entitlement, you might maybe ha have some issues there. And property is property. If you've got two years, um, you know, you've got some claim, even though I will say the shorter the relationship, the greater the reapportionment is going to be in favor of, um, you know, the, the person who purchased the assets or who brought them in, you know, like if your relationship is just two years, you know, you're not looking at, you know, for the spouse who's looking to cash in, if I can phrase it that way, you're not looking at more than 30% and, um, you know, 20% would be reasonable, maybe as low as 15. Yeah. Um, and, and that pretty much that until you get in the four to five year range when, you know, the 50-50 starts to be a lot more the default. Yeah. Do you find that you get a lot more, like, are there a lot of common law significance, like, reapportionments? Or do most people not even realize that that's a thing after two years that you're in a common law relationship? Um, I, I think people usually have some idea that, yeah, they, they know after two years you're in a common law relationship. I think people sometimes don't always know what a common law relationship is, like what we were talking about yeah. earlier, how you don't even have to live together necessarily. So sometimes people get surprised. And I think at other times people just have ideas about the way their relationship was going to work out. When it doesn't work out that way, they're upset and feel taken advantage of. And frankly, they may have been taken advantage of. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I use the example of if you've got a saver and a spender in the relationship, well, the, uh, the spender had a pretty good lifestyle during the relationship because they were spending. And at the end of the relationship, guess whose savings are left over to be split? It's the, it's the savers. And so they may feel hard done by, understandably, because they made sacrifices in the expectation that they would have a better lifestyle. And now, you know, half of that sacrifice is going to somebody else who had a pretty good life not making those same sacrifices. Um, and I fully appreciate that that's that that's not really fair. I would feel hard done by in those circumstances as well. But in the absence of a cohabitation agreement, that may be with what you're stuck with. Cohabitation agreements, by the way, I'm going to make a little plug in short term <laughs> relationships are can solve a good many problems, especially if you don't have kids. If you have a relationship that's less, that's five years or less and no kids, um, if, if you've got a decent cohab, you're probably going to be okay. When would you do that? At the one-year mark or before you move in? Um, I would probably start talking about it at the one-year mark 
or before marriage, you know, whichever is earlier. But yeah, at the one-year mark, I would start talking about it because one, you want to make sure you don't have kids if this is getting rocky, and two, you want to know to break up prior to two years if, if you guys can't reach an agreement. Um, well, and, and that sounds mercenary, but at the same time, you know, I, I think a cohab is a lot about fairness and people's expectations of fairness. And you can make it through a couple of years, you know, two or three years, based purely on hormones, you know. Um, and that'll get you through that. But if you guys can't agree on what's fair, you're going to have bigger, longer-term problems, and you will eventually end up in my office or somebody's like it. You know, I, I use the example of, like, you know, um, uh, I may potentially inherit some actual silverware, you know, that was passed on from, you know, grandparents or, or great-grandparents, and... Um, I don't want to have to split the increase in value, if any, in that silverware. I think that would be ridiculous because I'm never going to sell it. And if if I put in there these things, you know, you don't get the increase in value of, and the other person is like, no, if we break up, I absolutely should get the increase in value. I know that we have very different uh, conceptions of fairness. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me and the other person, if we want to have long-term relationships, we should probably be with other people. Yeah, I like this notion of proactive family lawyering, too, rather than just reactive. I think it makes good sense. Yeah. I it's mean, a lot of my job is reactive. I would be like, well, did you ever ask? But I'm not even certain I've ever had this. <laughs> it's like when I apply to myself. Yeah, I mean, but but the, these are things that people don't think about. A lot of times they just think, yeah. oh, we'll agree, we'll be fair. But when For you sure. break up, people are mad. Yeah. Especially if somebody's on the other person or whatever. People aren't being fair most of the time. And, you know, circumstances, you know, circumstances are, are different. And so, um, you know... I do always wonder this, how people end up being surprised by the behavior of their ex in a divorce proceeding, because to me, people don't really change, you know, if that's how they are in the relationship, that's certainly how they're going to be in the divorce. So, um, yeah, you know, or sometimes worse. Oh, you know, I, I had someone once said, um, oh, I'm sure he's hiding assets with his new spouse, and I asked, or new partner, and I asked, well, what makes you so sure? And they were like, well, because when he left the old one, he hid assets with me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, and I thought, well, okay, there was a warning sign, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, pe people people can get surprised and people just make assumptions that, oh, what I think is fair and this other person shares my ideas of fairness. But if you don't talk about that, you don't know. A hundred percent. And money is a hard thing. Money is a hard thing for people to talk about. Or yes. sometimes, you know, you, you get things where disclosure is a problem and you, you know these people have been married for like 15 years and one person has no idea what's going on. And, um, you know, that, that's something as well that gets revealed in the cohab. If the other person absolutely refuses to share their finances, you'll find out. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's a healthy thing. Um, but I, I guess, you know, you know about it. And if you're okay with it, 
you can be in that relationship, but you're never going to have, you know, the psychological security of knowing that your family finances are okay because you're never going to know. Um, you're you're also never going to know where things are, and if the other spouse, if you get separated or the other spouse gets hit by a car, you know, you're going to have some trouble. Um, I'm a big fan of people having like annual financial check-ins. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I hear stories where, where somebody says, oh, you know, that's my money. It's not your money. But the thing is, you're married, you're, or maybe you're not married, but you're in a common law relationship. You're in a partnership. Family debt is a real thing. You know, you're in a boat. Somebody can't drill a hole in their side of the boat and say, well, what are, you, what are you worried about? You're on that side of the boat. Guess yeah. what? The boat's sinking. Everybody's sinking. And I think that this cautionary tale is particularly pertinent to our target audience, which is that um, if all of these things have the potential to come up in a regular relationship, when you add in the international um, implications of an immigration-related marriage, um, getting some clarity as to how the other party is going to behave um, is absolutely vital because, um, you know, I think some people, to add to your, your proverb about the sinking boat, sometimes people have gone into the marriage because they are in love and they genuinely wish to be able to remain together and their entire immigration situation and status is based on those promises they're making to one another. So it adds a new dynamic to it because if that boat sinks, then somebody gets removed from Canada. <laughs> so that can be often the yeah. situation. So, um, so having those types of really difficult conversations up front uh, can be absolutely imperative because then it's not just the financial consequences, it's the whole immigration consequences that might be brought to bear on that other party. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then the last question uh, that I think that I had as we approach an hour, dowries and the return of dowries. Is that a concept that Canadian courts, BC courts will uh, like accept and recognize? right away just like that depends um so in some contexts like uh iranian marriages for example there's something called the mayor right um uh, and uh in that context there's a signed agreement and so that agreement may be enforceable um, it sometimes is, it sometimes isn't. It's dependent on a whole lot of factors, like any, well, like a cohab, you know. Um, but if it's just, hey, there's no contract and we just gave this person a sum of money, then it's like any other sum of money where you just gave that person a sum of money. Uh, so, it, you know, if it was done, uh, if, if it was done prior to marriage, and there was no cohabitation, then that dowry would be an excluded gift hmm. to the person who received it. Interesting. Um, now, if that dowry was in the form of gold, these days, gold's doing pretty well. And so uh, the, the spouse who gave it might still be able to get one half the increase um, in value of that gold. But yeah, the basic underlying capital you know, bye-bye mon cowboy, you know. Um, but uh, if, if um, 
if it was given, if the parties were cohabiting and then got married and the dowry got given and it was given from a spouse to the other spouse, it would be family property and it would fall into the pot. Mm. If it was given by a third party to the other spouse, then I would say it's probably their excluded asset. Mm. Um, uh, unless Now, of course, if that dowry then gets put into joint names, like if the dowry were cash and it got put into a house that was in joint names, then the exclusion and I need to be careful about this because the law has changed a lot back and it swung back and forth several times in the last seven years or so. But right now, you've presumptively lost the exclusion. Um, you, you may be able to reapportion on the basis of where the money came from, but the exclusion itself is, is presumptively lost. Uh, if, if it goes uh, into joint names. Uh, that's something to be careful of without a cohab don't put money into don't put money into assets whether they're houses or bank accounts in joint names um, unless you're prepared to risk losing that exclusion unless you have a cohab yeah. that's, uh, that's good to know and yeah I think that recommendation um, from Deanna that especially with international relationships, especially cross-cultural relationships to get, uh, make sure you understand your rights and obligations. 100%. As we're coming over an hour, I've been told before that I never give people's contact uh, information at the end of an episode. And as I pull open Ari's web, page on his website. I realize that I can't navigate it properly, but here it is. Ari at ylaw.com. That's A-R-I at ylaw with a Y, not W-H-Y, law.ca. Um, if you have any questions about family law and otherwise, uh, this was good. Mm, very interesting. Thank you very much, Steve. Yeah, okay, thanks you very take much. care. Have a good weekend. Yeah, have a good weekend, guys. You too. Bye.